1 Thessalonians chapter 5, our scripture reading is going to come from verse 16. And out of honor for the Lord and His Word, would you stand with me as we pray and ask His blessing upon the reading and then the preaching of His Word. Let's pray together. Now, blessed God, do come and bless us with Your Word. Bless us, O Lord, with its teaching. Help us to understand it. Help our souls thirst for it even more and long for it. Shape our lives with it, O Lord. Refresh us, Lord. Enlighten us. Correct us. And build us up, O Lord, in the faith we have in Jesus Christ. And Father, if there be any here this morning... And have not a relationship with Jesus Christ, we pray, O oh Lord, that you would be pleased to enlighten their hearts and their minds. Lord, to repent of their sins and to embrace Christ as Savior and Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, beloved, I want to read verse 16. Rejoice always. And thus ends the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. Not a long scripture reading this morning. And I don't want you to mistake these two words as being simplistic are somehow not as important as the other commands that Paul has already previously given to us. These two words are very powerful. And they are very enlightening once one considers what Paul is commanding us to do. Paul is addressing... The church in Thessalonica, and as he ends this letter, he ends this letter with multiple injunctions or commandments. It's not that Paul's just trying to fill up the space of the letter. It's not like he is trying to uh, match some word count that he has in mind. These are injunctions and commandments that are very important to every church and every believer. The Thessalonican church was a a blessed church. It was blessed in the sense that it, though being birthed out of great controversy, accepted without hesitation the truth of the gospel, even in light of the persecution that they would receive for receiving that gospel from Paul and his friends. They didn't hesitate to receive the message that caused such an uproar between the Jews and the Gentiles. 
They happily received it. They happily embraced Christ as the Messiah, as the Savior of men, as the Redeemer of sinners. They happily received the Word of God as the the revelation of God where one could go and find such a rich, glorious salvation. They happily received their duties as Christians in that they didn't just receive this and go about their merry way. They received these commandments. They received the teaching of the apostles. They received Christ as Savior. And they were eager and glad to go out and tell others about it. They were eager to be the church of of Christ in the earth. They were eager to put away their idolatry. They were eager to do that. They were eager to see God glorified in their lives, in the way they thought about things now, compared to the way they used to think about things. They wanted... They wanted others to see Christ manifested in their new habits, in their new worship, in their new lifestyles. They wanted the world to see Christ in them. And so when Paul ends the letter with these injunctions, he's not just staying busy. He's not just throwing things out uh, uh, to them These are meaningful, they are important, and all of us should take note of them. And this morning, we are to look at verse 16, where Paul commands us to rejoice always. You might even say it this way, if it helps you. Be happy in the Lord all the time. Even though rejoicing, the rejoicing that Paul is speaking of here is deeper and richer than what we commonly understand as happiness. Yet happiness does convey the idea of rejoicing. Maybe not as richly or as deeply, but yet it helps us understand what Paul is commanding. You know, we live in a land of plenty, don't we? We live, quite simply, in a land of a lot of stuff. We, in America, simply have a hard time relating to some of the documentaries we watch on TV or some of the YouTube clips of third world nations and communities of people and cultures where they have very little, hardly anything at all. And one of the things that you notice in these documentaries is they're always smiling. They always seem to bear a happiness that we can not relate to. Because in America or in Americanism, our whole happiness, the philosophy of materialism, all is it all comes to weight on us as Americans. The more we have, the happier we are. The more of everything, the more it's it, it, it's a consumption 
of life. We get, 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 so we can be happy, 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 happy. That's the American way. And as Christians living in America, I I don't want us to think we haven't been affected by it. Paul here is explaining the Scriptures And and again, this commandment to rejoice always comes in the reality that this church was under persecution. This injunction comes to a body of believers that are suffering, not will suffer, not had been suffering, but was suffering for their faith. Their testimony. For their new convictions in Christ. For going against the culture. For going against... You know, they they were no longer the worshipers of Mount Olympus, which was just south of them. They were no longer part of that idolatrous culture where they were having all of these festivals to all of these man-made gods. They no longer participated in those things. They were now breaking away from their godless culture. It was very noticeable. And of course, that kind of attention certainly may bring not only curiosity for the opportunity to you know, present the gospel, but it may also bring hostility. I think I've heard some of you talk about some of the hostility that you have received when you became a Christian. The problem, brothers and sisters, we may face in obeying such a commandment is us trying to synchronize what Paul is saying and what the Bible teaches with our Americanism. And that's a problem. That's a problem. When we try to synchronize the the teaching and the influence and the abiding presence of God in us in the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit has planted in us and is bringing the fruit is incompatible with the ideologies of materialism and Americanism, the independence of what the American ideal is cannot sync with the Holy Spirit's teaching and the influence and the, 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 um, the teaching of the Holy Spirit. It, we have to make a distinction and a decision this morning. Either we will obey Paul and rejoice always and learn what that is, or we can try to make it something that we want it to be And be guilty of idolatry. And be guilty of taking something very precious and godly. Very needed and necessary for the the Christian life and the health and well-being of the church itself. And meshing it or synchronizing it with basically the philosophy of fallen men. Which ultimately leads to death and destruction. I make no mistake and I don't try to minimize the idea that 
happiness is expressed by many, both outside the church. People even come to America to be what? Happy. They come to America to be happy because they are so oppressed. They're tyrannized. They're abused. And they come to America that they might be liberated from that tyranny, that it might be, whether it be political or even religious, they come to America that they might be liberated and exercise a, 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 a form of freedom that they have not ever experienced or known before. And we would not call, we would not say that's not happiness. But it's not exactly what Paul is talking about here. We don't want to mix the two up. This kind of happiness that Paul is speaking of here is a spiritually generated joy in us. It's an inward reality that expresses itself outwardly in various circumstances. Unbelievers do experience happiness. Unbelievers do experience happiness in weddings and intimate relationships and friendships and the birth of children and having a, 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 a job that puts groceries on the table, being able to provide for a family. Happy, unbelievers do experience happiness, a, a happiness when there is um, something that they may even do for their neighbor. But where, even, even in this, even in that explanation and acknowledgement, where does that come from? Well, that comes from God's common grace. See, even that comes from the Lord. Even that, brothers and sisters, comes from the God of glory who holds all things in His hands, who supports all things that He has made and created, and He even upholds the unbeliever from falling into ultimate despair. It's the goodness of God, brothers and sisters, that all men, all women, all families must look to. It's the goodness of God. Why do you think Psalm 100 is such an important psalm calling, calling all nations to do what? Worship God. Why? Why? What's the basis and foundation of calling all the nations to gather and celebrate God? His goodness. He is good. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 2 that the goodness of God leads men to repentance. He causes it to rain, doesn't He? On both the righteous and the wicked. The same God who causes and blesses the crops of the believer to grow and come to fruit is the same God that causes the crops of the unbeliever to grow and come to fruit. The, the same believer that sits at his table and eats from the fruit and labors of his hands, God is the cause of the even unbeliever being able to sit down with his family and enjoy the fruit and the labor of his own hands. It's God's common grace. And we should understand that. We should have a full, firm grasp on that. 
So we don't confuse the two. So we don't look out uh, from around us and say, wow, I mean, here's a commandment to rejoice always, but yet I see even happier people outside the church. That was the problem of the psalmist. I believe Psalm 78, it was the problem of the psalmist. And the psalmist said, Lord, I look out and I don't see your enemies suffering. I see suffering in the church. I see your people suffering. I see your people uh, bearing the weight of their, of their sins. I, I, I see the, the, the people that don't know you prospering. It doesn't even look like they have a care in the world. And the psalmist goes on. He says, you know, Lord, that was a stumbling. That was almost a stumbling block for me. I thought about these things and I considered, wow, why does the church look so oppressed and why do the unbelievers look so happy? And the psalmist helps us understand how the Lord opened his eyes. He said it was in the worship. It was, Lord, when I came and I, 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 when I come into your presence in worship, my mind was enlightened to the fact that we bear a glorious future and that all things that are happening to us have an eternal consequence and promise attached to it. The unbeliever does not. He does not. She does not see their own end which is destruction. See, what the psalmist said and what the psalmist confessed was, as I came and I praised God, as the Word of God was read to me, my mind became enlightened to the fact that only the church has these eternal blessings promised and given to them. The unbeliever doesn't have that promise. The unbeliever doesn't have those promises. And the unbeliever deludes him or herself by thinking this is as good as it gets. That because I don't suffer, I must may even be in favor with God. Because everything I touch turns to gold. I must be in favor with God. I must have it made. He deludes and she deludes himself into thinking there are no problems. That they don't they are not at odds and at war with the living God. And the psalmist says, oh, that is not so true. For they are destined to an eternal damnation. Woe to them. See, this commandment is for believers. Even though unbelievers can rejoice, beloved, make no mistake about it. Their rejoicing is only temporary and their rejoicing is only circumstantial. They always need something else to make them happy. Their hearts are empty. And so they must fill it with something. And they seek to fill it with all kinds of ways in order to produce a delight in their life. A happiness, a joy, a delight. Something that they can hold on to. Something that they can remember the moment by. It's fleeting, it's temporary, and it is something that constantly needs their energy and their activity. That's why the Bible says, oh, how restless is the wicked. 
restless. They can't rest in the Lord because they don't know the Lord. They can't rest in the power of God because they don't know God. They can't rest in the promises of God because they don't have the promises of God. They can't rest in a communion and a relationship with God because they don't have that communion with God. They've not been brought favorably into the presence of God. Beloved, that's why unbelievers hate True and biblical worship. It's much easier for an unbeliever to enjoy worship that is more like a rock concert than it is a service where God is honored and glorified, where His Word is presented and honored, and where the people are expected to receive that Word and grow in grace. You think about rejoice. You think about rejoicing in the commandment to rejoice. I want to read to you um, question 36 of our standards from the Westminster Catechism, Shorter Catechism, question 36. Here's the question. What are the benefits? Now think about that. What are the benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification. Let me describe those three words for you. What is justification? Justification is an act of God alone where He declares a person not guilty. Where He declares a person righteous because of the work of Christ. That is, the one who believes in Jesus and expresses faith, God declares that person guiltless. That's justification. It's a work. It's a work that God does. We do not participate in that whatsoever. What about adoption? That should be simple to understand. It's it's a work of God's grace where we are adopted into the family of God. Why? Because When we are unbelieving, when we are not Christians, we are not in God's family, we are in fallen Adam's family, we are in the family of the devil. We are in a family of darkness, sin, sorrow, misery. We are in a family where uh, lusts, uh, selfishness, all are magnified, exalted, highlighted in whatever way. It's a family of selfishness. Adoption is a grace. Why? What is a grace? A grace is something you don't deserve. A grace is something you have, but you didn't earn it. You can't even keep it, and you can never do anything to deserve it. A grace is something that God does freely because of His love for you. Right? It's a grace. It's an unmerited favor. And sanctification is another work of grace. It's a grace that God, through the Holy Spirit, is working in us that we might more and more die to sin and live to righteousness. Die to sin and live to righteousness. We were Sanctify. Now notice the answer here. 
So what are the benefits that do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification? Listen to the answer. The benefits which in this life, that means here and now, these ain't, these, these ain't future benefits, therefore here today, do accompany and flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification are assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, now notice this one, Joy in the Holy Ghost. Joy in the Holy Spirit. An increase of grace and a perseverance therein unto the end. Now I only want to highlight the idea of the joy of the Holy Ghost. Notice the joy of the Holy Spirit is an outworking and a benefit of those saving graces we have secured for us in Christ. That's why the joy that Paul is talking about, the rejoicing that Paul is referring to here, it's not the same as an un, the believer's rejoicing or happiness. It's not the same. It's much different. Different causes. Listen to Isaiah, the, and he kind of highlights the difference here between what might be an unbelieving unbeliever's happiness and rejoicing versus the believer's rejoicing. Isaiah 61 and verse 10. I will rejoice. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. What is Isaiah speaking of here? Isaiah is saying, because of all that I have in my God, the God who saved me, the God who cleansed me, I shall be joyful. I shall be joyful. And I shall rejoice greatly in my God. Psalm 103 and verse 1 and following. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is in me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of His benefits. Who forgives all your iniquities. Who heals your diseases. Who redeems your life from destruction. Who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercy. Who satisfies your mouth with good things. So that your youth is renewed like the eagles. I mean it's in poetry but we get it don't we? Oh how the believer rejoices greatly in their relationship with God. Oh, my soul, bless the Lord. What is the opposite of this rejoicing? Maybe that will help us. What is the opposite? And we've already said a good bit about rejoicing. We've kind of already kind of, you know, we've placed it sort of in a biblical framework, and that is the kind of rejoicing that we are commanded to do springs from and issues from from the relationship that we have with God in us. It's the fruit of the Holy Spirit working in us inwardly so that we can outwardly rejoice. And rejoice in any kind of numerous situations and circumstances. 
What is the opposite of rejoice? And see if you've experienced this. The opposite of rejoice is sorrow. Have you ever experienced sorrow? Yes. I'm sure you have. But you see, the believer's sorrow is not like the unbeliever's sorrow, is it? It's not. You were sad when you maybe went to the funeral of a loved one or a friend. It saddens us. Our sorrow or our joy is mitigated for a bit, isn't it? With the sorrow of the loss. We think about Jesus weeping at the death of Lazarus. Jesus, get this, felt genuine sorrow. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. He he walks upon the mount overlooking the city and he weeps and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, oh, how I have sought to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not listen. And the Lord Jesus expresses a, a heartfelt, genuine sorrow over the path that Jerusalem was taking in rejecting Him and denying His Word. See, Jesus' sorrow was based upon He knows where they're going. Sorrow. What about this sorrow? Sorrow grips tightly the heart, doesn't it? Have you ever been so sorrowful you ached? You got sick to your stomach? You, got, you were so moved with grief. You were sick. Because sorrow embraces the heart. It squeezes the heart. It presses down, if you will, upon the soul of man. And that's why Proverbs says, Oh, oh, a broken spirit who can bear. Oh, a broken spirit who can bear a broken heart. Who can bear a heart that's weighed down with sorrow? Even even the Proverbs recognize the heart can only take so much. Sorrow oppresses in us all that is good. That's why we understand it's it's not godly sorrow that we may be experiencing, but ungodly sorrow, the angst and the anxiety and the pressure and the depression we feel is at war with good. We say, what good is it to be a Christian? Why am I worshiping God? Why do I waste my time giving? Why do I waste my time? I'm not going to read the Bible anymore. It does no good. That's that godless sorrow. It oppresses the soul. And it pushes out everything that's good. See, Jesus never experienced that. We may battle that. Jesus, when he was sorrowful, he didn't. Tem- he wasn't tempted to throw away all of his righteousness. And it brings pain. Sorrow brings pain to the soul. What about joy? Let's think about joy a little bit. Joy liberates the mind from darkness. 
It helps us to dwell, if you will, on good things. We're going to look at several verses here in a bit. But notice, it liberates the mind from darkness. It enlarges the heart to embrace all that is good. Though we may sorrow, brothers and sisters, though we may feel um, uh, sorrowful for a loss of a friend, a loved one, a family member, we are never void of good. We're not tempted to, to throw away all the work of the Lord in our lives. We understand it's all part of God's sovereign plan for us. Romans 8. That God is working together for the good. All of His plans. All of, his, all of His purposes. He is working all of these things in our lives for our good, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Rejoicing enlarges the heart and embraces all good things. It does refresh and even restore the soul. You know when you come into worship, those times when maybe you've had a very long and hard week. To be able to sing and hear God's people singing with you. It refreshes your soul. Sometimes, have you ever stopped singing to hear God's people sing? When you, when you, when you, when you just stop, I mean, you're in the moment. Your heart's being lifted up to glory, right? And, 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 and you're listening to the the people of God praise Him. And oh, how it lifts your spirit. Oh, how it feeds your soul. Oh, how it refreshes you. Brothers and sisters, that's one reason it's important that we all participate in worship, isn't it? it that's why it's important if we all come with this mindset and this heart to praise God because we matter. You matter. Your presence matters. Your voice matters. I want you to think about your brother and sister. What if they close their eyes and open their ears and hear nothing? What if? Do you think the soul then is lifted and refreshed? Or do you think the soul then becomes burdened by the lack of joy in the worship of God? Rejoice always, brothers and sisters. What is rejoicing? Rejoicing is the outward manifestation of an inward reality. You can't fake it. You can't fake this kind of joy. It's, it's, it's who you are. It's what God is doing in you. And yes, it's different in degrees uh, based upon the strength of your own faith. Those who have a weak faith, an untrained, or a, a very um, uh, not full in experience and knowledge, will have a very mitigated rejoicing, a mitigated joy. See, our joy is coupled with the means of grace, with our salvation. And those who have a strong faith, a vibrant faith, 
that has a faith that's feasting upon the Word of God, feasting upon the promises of God, growing in the providences and circumstances of God, seeing His sovereign hand in our lives, shaping and molding us into the image of the blessed Christ, then guess what? Our joy will be fuller, stronger, and more vibrant and noticeable. But if you are a believer, beloved, you have this joy. Rejoicing is the outward manifestation of an inward reality where the heart has been liberated to love. To be joyful. To seek peace and kindness. And all of the outward man flows. That's the point of Galatians 5. This is the point that Paul is making in Galatians 5. This is something that can't be man-made. It's not something that man creates and does for himself. It is something that God does in him. In verse 13 of Galatians 5, For you are called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into opportunity for the flesh or for sin. But through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. In the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. But I say walk by the Spirit. Now notice, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. And you can see that In verse 17, he lists those desires of the flesh. But look at verse 18. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. You see, beloved, my point that I am making here is that this rejoicing is an inward work in us that comes outward in our lives. The way we worship in our common everyday relationships, in the way we see the world around us, we cannot help but have a certain disposition because the Holy Spirit has worked in us these saving graces. It's that inward inward work of grace where God, the Holy Spirit... This makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? This makes all the difference. Why is it that we are kept from such sorrow when we lose a loved one? Why is it we are kept from such sorrow when we lose a dear friend? Why is it we're kept from such sorrow when we see so much pain and suffering around us? Because we are being upheld by God in us. And the Holy Spirit is upholding us. And He's working in us the Word of God. And that's why preaching is a part of that. He's working in us these truths that we've learned and all of the things that we bear. And it's not that case with the unbeliever. If you look over at Matthew 13, Matthew chapter 13, I want to show you how momentary and how temporal the the joy is for the unbeliever. Look at Matthew chapter 13. Look at verse 
1 or verse 3, And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Others fell on rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because of no depth of soil. But when the sun had arisen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. And notice, verse 18, Jesus explains the parable to his disciples. He says, hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom the seed was sown by the road. And the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And then there's... One on whom the seed is sown by the thorns. And this is the man who hears the word. And the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the world out and it becomes unfruitful. You see, beloved, that the unbeliever can rejoice even when he hears the word of God preached. Even the unbeliever can understand the sin. Unbelieving marriages. You know, two unbelievers living together. They understand what hatred does to a marriage. They understand what it, when there's no kindness in a marriage, the effect it has on the other spouse. Do they understand it to the depth and the level that we should who know the Word of God? No, they don't. But they still understand the devastation of selfishness, even though they may carry out that selfishness. And they may even amend their lives to a certain degree to reflect wanting to get rid of those vices. But it's always temporal. It's always temporal. I'm going to give you a personal testimony. When I, grew, when I was growing up, I was told... All I had to do is have Jesus in my heart to be saved. Maybe you've heard this before. All I had, all I was told was, look, if you want to be saved, pray and ask Jesus to live in your heart. And brothers and sisters, I did that about 152,000 times. I'd pray every night before I went to bed. And my life was never changed. You see, I didn't understand. See, my ignorance kept me in the dark. Humanly speaking, my ignorance, my lack of knowledge, my lack of understanding, didn't understand what it meant to have a heart changed for Christ. It was nothing more than fire insurance. It was nothing more. It wasn't 
a love and a joy for rejoicing in the Lord, in the kingdom of God, in the teaching of the Word of God. It wasn't a joy and rejoicing in the means of grace. It was fire insurance. I just didn't want to go to hell. It wasn't a reform of holiness. It was, I still loved sin. I still loved my ways. I still wanted to be me without Christ. And there was never a reformation of attitude. Make no mistake about it, brothers and sisters. I want to, you to understand something here. Attitude. Desires of the heart. God sees it all. Reformation of the person. And I believe so many today have that same problem that I once had. It's a misunderstanding of Christ, who Christ is. A misunderstanding of what Christ has actually come to do. Which is to what? Liberate us from darkness. Liberate us from our sin. Liberate us from our own ignorance. Liberate us from our own guilt. Liberate us from our own depravity so that we might what? Be free in Christ to rejoice and praise Him always. Free. Listen, brothers and sisters. Has your experience with Christ led you to the freedom of rejoicing? Has your experience with Jesus and the confession of your own sins, has, has your pursuit for a relationship with God led you in the paths of righteousness and holiness? Has it reformed your desires? Has it reformed your thinking? Has it taught your heart to rejoice in God, His Word? Has it taught you to rejoice in holiness? At least five things here, brothers and sisters. True joy is, and we'll close. True joy rejoices in salvation. True salvation. Not, this, not, not the, the fake salvation that I just spoke of in my own life when I was young. You see, because every time I got into a situation, I'd pray the prayer again. See, I had no assurance because I didn't have a true relationship. I had no desires for holiness. I had no desires to grow in holiness. I had no desires to feast upon the Word of God. I didn't, never read it. See, I was deceived and I deceived myself. True joy rejoices in salvation. We see that with the eunuch that Philip meets in the book of Acts in chapter 8, verse 37 and 39. After the eunuch uh, professes faith in Jesus and confesses his sins and is baptized by Philip, the Bible says he goes off rejoicing in the Lord. 
You see, beloved, you have to have this inward disposition because if you don't, guess what? You're going to understand that as I walk now this new path in Christ Jesus, all things have gone away. These old things are passing away. Old friends don't want much to do with you because you're not the same old guy or gal you used to be when you was sinful. And not only that, you just can't take any delight in it anymore. That which used to bring you delight brings you sorrow because you know where it's going. Think about the Philippian jailer in Acts 16. Let me tell you something. When you turned in your resume to be a jailer, you are not a good dude. You are a bad person. That is, you're a bad boy. Nobody will mess with you. They don't get the weakest. They don't get the timid. They don't pick up on the, you know, pretty boy urbanite guy to be the jailer. And this guy can handle himself. This guy can handle himself. Because he's over the whole jail. What does he do? This ruffian. What does this hardened man who could strike any person down with just a swipe of his sword if he got out of line and not feel bad about it? What does he do when Paul preaches to him the kindness and the goodness and the grace of Jesus Christ and he believes? The Bible says he rejoiced in his salvation along with all of his household. This rough, tough individual, this rugged man whose heart had now been tenderized by the grace of God, now he praises Jesus who saved him from sin, from death and the devil. He's been liberated, brothers and sisters. He's been liberated. Now his heart praises God for peace and kindness and goodness. (laughs) What a picture. What an example. True joy, beloved, not only rejoices in one's salvation, but it rejoices in the communion that salvation brings. And I think this is, these are sort of the test, isn't it? That is, oh, I'm saved, but I have no communion with God. No, true rejoicing celebrates communion with God. Communion, interaction, worship, God, the, the Father, the Father, the Father in His electing love. The Father who before the foundation of the world loved you and gave His Son on your behalf. The Father who has orchestrated all things for your good love of Jesus Christ. Who left glory. Who set aside Philippians, Paul writes in Philippians 2, who laid aside for a moment that glory he was due to come and put on human flesh and to live a sinless and perfect life and to offer up that life 
as a sacrifice for your sins. You want to commune with Him? There's nobody in this room that's ever shown you that kind of love. Nobody in this room has ever shown you that kind of love. No spouse. No son or daughter. No parent. No friend. No pastor or elder. No church member. The Lord Jesus Christ came freely and laid down His life. And the Bible says that He did not see the burden of the cross as something to shy away from, but with joy obeyed His Father. He went to that cross not with pain and affliction of heart. Oh, I don't really want to do this, but I got to because they're so... I know the joy of His Father pressed Him. His love pressed Him to the cross. He said, oh, I want to die for my Father's people. I want to give my life for them. What about the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit who fills you, who empowers you, who moves and causes you to yearn for more of the Word, more teaching, more meditation, more memorization, causing you to yearn more to know. I want to know more about God. I'm thirsting. My soul thirsts for righteousness. My heart longs to know more. The Holy Spirit who the Bible teaches us has filled us with all goodness. Who has sealed us for the day of redemption. The day of judgment. We're sealed by the Holy Spirit. We're stamped. We have a seal. You know what that seal means? The seal means we belong to God. You know when you seal something. You seal a document. It takes on some authority. And we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. We belong to God. I do want to warn you of one thing. Turn to Psalm 51. I don't want you to think, oh, Jess, you're teaching me that the Christian life is just all bliss and glory and rejoicing and happiness. No, brothers and sisters, I'm not at all teaching you that. What I am telling you, though, is that this commandment that Paul gives us to rejoice always can be fulfilled by each and every one of us who know Christ. We can long to obey it. We can desire to obey it. We can train ourselves to obey it. We can look for opportunities to rejoice always. But I'm going to tell you, brothers and sisters, if we are having a problem, if we are struggling with joy, if we are struggling with um, uh, you know, feasting, hungering, looking, seeking the means of grace, and all of these things that I've been talking about, brothers and sisters, I want to tell you something. Sin can mitigate your joy. It can never wipe it out. Because again, our joy is not based upon our own efforts. Our joy is in us because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. But sin can mitigate it. Ignorance can mitigate it. A lack of understanding about what to do and how to act in this life can mitigate one's joy. 
When we fail to desire that which is good can mitigate joy. I want you to turn and look at Psalm 51 and look at verse 10. This is the repentance. This is a song that was written by a man named David who was king of Israel for 40 years. David was known as a psalm writer, a song writer. He sung about the joys of the Lord. And look, I want you to know what happened in his life when he yielded to sin, when he yielded to his selfishness, when he yielded to the path of unrighteousness and unholiness. I want you to know he fell into sin and he spent a time of his life in deep, dark sorrow. Verse 10. Create in me, O God, uh, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Notice his desire for communion. Do not take the Holy, your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Sustain me with a willing spirit. Notice a willing spirit. Don't just sustain me. Give me that willingness I once had. Verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. I want you to understand what's the psalmist. This is, this is a psalm of repentance. This is David saying, I once had such strong desires for you. Sin stifled it. My own selfishness and my own waywardness stifled my desire, my joys, my longing for you. Sin mitigated that. Oh Lord, and my sin has brought me so low. You can read the whole psalm later. And notice what he said. Oh Lord, restore me. Give me the joy I once had. Give me the communion I once had. Give me, oh Lord, the strength of my own heart that I once had. The resolve in my heart to do what? Say no to lust. To say no to sin. To say no to uh, all kinds of cruelty. To say no. I guess I should mention all the modern day vices, right? The pornography, the hatred, the selfishness, the ambitions to be somebody and something in this life. To stomp on the people working next to you to take credit for their work. Climbing the corporate ladder. All of those things. Oh Lord, restore in me the desire that I once had to follow and worship and serve you and to be your child and you be my God and Father. Oh, Father, oh brothers and sisters, listen to me. In Christ, you have this joy. In Christ, you will sustain this joy. It's in Christ, brothers and sisters, that you rekindle that joy. I beg you this morning, let Zion be a place of rejoicing. I beg you, you be a person of rejoicing. You be a person of rejoicing by being a person that seeks after Christ in communion with God and submission and submission to the work of the Holy Spirit in your lives. Let's pray. And blessed God, do bless us for Christ's sake to obey and to keep, O Lord, this holy commandment 
This commandment that teaches us to love, to rejoice, and to praise You for all things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, let's stand now and turn in our hymnals to, or in our songbooks.